turned in your homework. And if you haven't gotten your first homework back yet, I have it up here. You can see me after class to get that back. Uh, today we're going to go through more of the ABCD matrix formalism, or the ray matrix formalism, or the system matrix formalism, or the paraxial ray matrix formalism, depending on what, uh, what book or what uh, name you use. We introduced this last time, and I'll briefly recap what we did last time. The idea was that an input ray, or any ray, can be described by some distance from the optical axis and some angle with respect to the optical axis. And so those two parameters uniquely define a ray, and you can write them as a vector. And we're using the notation where the first element in the vector is the displacement from the optical axis at a point. The second element is its angle with respect to that uh, optical axis. And all of these calculations assume what we call the paraxial approximation, which is all the angles are going to be small. So sines and tangents can be approximated as the actual angles. Okay, so if you have a ray going into a system, the action of that system is to change the ray. Depending on what that system is, it will change it in different ways. And then we'll have an output ray that's also defined by some, um, at some output plane, by some distance away from the optical axis and some angle at which it's propagating. So the mathematical operator that takes an input vector and transforms it into another vector is a matrix. And so these two by two matrices will represent our optical system. So last time we went through the task of taking some simple optical systems and trying to rationalize what the form of the ABCD matrix would look like. And now today, we're going to put those matrices together to do more complex optical systems and try to find some useful parameters from this, this uh, formalism. So I'm not going to do, do the full derivation of these, but I will go through each one that we've already done just to remind you that propagation through a distance L in free space has the effect of changing the position of the ray relative to the optical axis. When it comes out, it's displaced by an additional amount that depends on how far it went and the slope of the ray. And so the matrix looked like this. This one takes the input position, and that gets multiplied by 1 to give you your output position, plus L times the input slope. L times the input slope is the change in the input position. So that was sort of the uh, logic that we used to generate that matrix for a free space. Thank you. We had a matrix for refraction at an interface. So we started with a plane interface. And we basically just use Snell's law to relate the angle of the input light to the angle of the output light. And so our system matrix had a 1 here, which relates the position of the input light to the position of the output light. They're the same. And it had this ratio n1 over n2 that relates the angle of the input light to the angle of the output light.
So we could put those two things together and get a system matrix for a slab. So a slab is some material that has a different index than the surrounding medium. And we've got two refractions and some free space propagation in between them. So we just write that as a series of matrix elements. Going in our system, the diagram is drawn from left to right. In the math, we add these matrices from right to left because we multiply matrices from right to left. So our input vector would be over here on the right. And the first interface it encounters is refraction from index one, N1 to N2. So we have the refraction matrix going from N1 to N2. And then it propagates a distance L. So the next matrix we add on the left is free space propagation through distance L. And then we have refraction from N2 to N1. So we add another refraction matrix, this time from N2 to N1. And we can multiply these out and get a compound system matrix. And I think we wrapped up the day by talking about a uh, spherical surface. When you have refraction through a spherical surface, and this derivation was a little more involved because we had to consider the fact that the uh, that when we apply Snell's law, the angles that we're dealing with are a function of how high we are off the optical axis because the surface is curved. So as you go higher and higher up, the normal changes direction. And as a result, we had a, uh, a term that was off axis here. And this is saying that the, um, that the angle of the output ray depends on the position of the input ray. So I won't go through that derivation, but I do want to point out one thing about this, and I didn't mention it last time, is that all these distances, um, these, these input and output planes that we measure the rays at um, are easy to define when we have planar structures. But when we have a curved structure like this, we're assuming that we can treat the entire surface as a plane. And we usually draw the plane that is tangent at the vertex. So the tangent plane is where we define our input and output rays. So there's a bit of an approximation. Right? A ray that, this red ray that's drawn here, actually travels a little bit further in the air than, um, than just the distance to the vertex. The surface is pulled back from the vertex a little bit due to the curvature. Okay, but we're dealing with a praxial approximation where all the angles are small. Um, sometimes these curvatures can be large. But that's just one more approximation to be aware of. Wait. So is your RL prime related to the horizontal line or related to the normal of the, of the uh, line? All angles are measured with respect to the optical axis in this, okay. in this formalism because the rays are independent of the objects that they're going through. We want to define the rays in a way that's independent of the stuff that they're encountering. So this normal line, which for doing Snell's law, you want to know all the angles with respect to the normal. But for doing this ray matrix approach, we define all the angles with respect to the optical axis, because that's the one thing that's constant in our system. So 
two curved surfaces with free space between them is like the slab matrix where we had two flat surfaces with free space between them. We just replace the refraction matrices with the refraction of a curved surface. And we can write it like this. And by multiplying this out, we get an expression for the system matrix for a thick lens, because right? this is what a thick lens is. Okay, So um, let me go through and do that. I don't think we did that last time. I think we uh, stated this result, and then we finished up. So multiplying through a bunch of matrices can be a pain in the butt. If you have Mathematica, or you're dealing with a problem that's numerical, and that all the values are given, and you can just plug in numbers and then calculate the numbers, um, then you could use MATLAB. And usually I say, always evaluate problems symbolically. And then when you're done and you have an answer, you can plug in numbers and get a value. It can be, as I mentioned, very difficult to go through and manipulate uh, lots of matrix multiplication symbolically. It will be a lot easier if you just plug in the numbers first. Okay? Just something to keep in mind. If you're using MATLAB, or math, I'm sorry, Mathematica, you can do it symbolically, get a symbolic expression, and then plug in the numbers, and that's the way I'd recommend you do it. Gregory? No. You don't get a matrix that allows you to treat this as a thin lens. What we will have is a matrix that tells us how an input ray at this plane gets transformed to an output ray at that plane. And those planes are separated by some distance d. Okay, so we're not coming up with a way to treat this as a thin lens here. Yeah, if you take away the center matrix, what we would get is the matrix for a thin lens. So let's do this. Let's multiply this out for a thick lens. We can take the limit when d goes to 0, and we'll see what the matrix should be for a thin lens. And then we'll compare that to what we get by using geometric arguments. Okay, So I'm going to um, use a little shorthand here and not rewrite every matrix. Um, so the first step is I'm going to multiply these two matrices on the right. This one on the left, I'll, I'll leave as is for the moment and not write it out again. But I have 1 and d multiplied by 1 and n1 over n2 minus 1 over r1. It's like a 1 minus plus d over r1, n1 over n2 minus 1. And then I have 1 and d in turn multiplied by 0 and n1 plus n2. So that's 1 times 0 plus d times n1 over n2. And then 0, 1 times 1 and n1 over n2 minus 1 over r1. And then 0 and 1 times 0 and n1 over n2. And this would be a good time to make sure that I've got the proper subscripts to differentiate this r from that r. 
I do. So now I'll multiply these two matrices together. And so the first row times the first column just gives me a term that I already had. First row times the second column just gives me this term up here. Second row times the second column gets a little bit messy. it unexpanded. Um, Finally, the second row times the second column give me my last term. Right here? This one? Yeah, I multiplied it through. OK, so I can do a little bit. Will I simplify that some more? Um, no, I'll just leave it. I, I could simplify that more, but I'm not going to come up with anything particularly illuminating by doing so. So I'll just leave that as it is. And that's our system matrix for a thick lens. So I go through this just. Um, I'm doing some matrix multiplication because you know, it's a little different than multiplying scalars, and it's something that if you haven't done it in a while can, uh, can introduce some errors. So let me now take the limit of this matrix as d goes to 0, and that should give me the expression for a thin lens. So the first term is just 1. This d goes to 0. The second term over here, the b term, is 0. Uh, this term down here simplifies because this part goes to 0. So I'm just left with this part. Plus, and then this part. And this term goes to 1. So this should be my expression for a thin lens, my matrix expression for a thin lens. Um, if you're on the ball, you may recognize this expression right here is 1 over the focal length. But let's make that argument in maybe a little more transparent way using geometry. 
So let's do what we did before and look at the effect of the thin lens on an input ray. Um, so we know from the thin lens equation that an object located one object distance away over here is going to have all of its rays imaged to a point one image distance away on the other side. So we can take an arbitrary ray that hits at a, at a height of r sub n, whatever height we want to consider, and we'll know the angle that that ray is coming at because we'll know how high it is and we'll know how far away it came from if we consider that coming from a point on the base of our object. And then the output ray we know has to go down a distance r in over a length s sub i, the image distance, in order to produce that image. Okay, So we know a little bit about the uh, angles. The input angle is going to be equal to however high the input ray is at divided by the object distance, which is the angle of this ray coming from one object distance away, going up a height r. The output ray, likewise, has a similar relationship. It has to go down a distance r, so I have minus r for the slope, in a, in a length s sub i. So the output slope is minus r over s sub i. So now I can say from the thin lens equation, had practice using on this homework, I can write the image distance, or I can write 1 over the image distance as 1 over f minus 1 over s naught. And that means I can write this output ray angle, minus r over si, as minus r. Instead of multiplying it by 1 over si, I'll multiply it by equivalent expression, 1 over f minus 1 over s naught. That gives me an output angle that's in terms of the object position. My input angle is in terms of the object position. And so if I look at my ABCD matrix, and the effect that it has on my input ray is completely general for any ABCD matrix. I can relate those uh, input angles and output angles through these two expressions. And here's the one that relates the input and output angles. So reminding myself that the input angle equaled r over s naught. Let me plug this in here for the input angle. Let me plug in r for my input height. Let me put in, plug in this expression here for my output angle.
I'll expand this out. Plus, thank you. I can see that there are a term on the left and a term on the right that depend on the object distance. And those have to be the same regardless of the object distance, which means that the, the factor here, 1, has to equal the factor here, d. And then the terms that are independent of the object distance also have to be equal. That means c has to be minus 1 over f. There's one more constraint that I have, and that's that the input height is the same as the output height. The thin lens, I treat it as if it's just a deviation in the angle of the ray at a point or at a plane. So the input height has to equal the output height, which means R in equals R out, which says B is equal to 0 and A is equal to 1. And so my thin lens matrix is fully determined. It's 1, 0, minus 1 over F1. 1, 0, minus 1 over f1. OK, so now I can compare that to the expression I had from the thick lens when I took the limit when d went to 0. And this term down here I said may look familiar. It's written in a slightly different form. But um, I could rearrange this and find that this, this, which looks like 1 over f, actually has to be then minus 1 over f. So I can compare it to my definition of the focal length in terms of the radius of curvature of the two sides. And I could verify that. OK, uh, I think there's one more optic to consider. That's a curved mirror. So we already have a sense of what a curved mirror does, because we've, um, we've already argued that a curved mirror acts like a lens in that it focuses light or defocuses light, depending whether it's a converging or diverging mirror. And if we make the substitution that the, uh, we can use the thin lens equation, if we make the substitution that f is minus r over 2. Right, so this mirror <coughs> is concave, as seen from the left. It has a negative radius of curvature. If I plug in a negative value for r, I get a positive focal length converging optic. And so I can take my expression that I had for um, the ABCD matrix for a thin lens, and I plug in minus r over 2 for the focal length. And so this c term becomes 2 over r instead of minus 1 over f. This r right there is not the same as this capital R. This capital R is the radius of curvature. This r is some arbitrary position at which I'm going to measure the rays. Okay, so um, it's a, it could also be written as r in. So you could go through the same analysis where you consider a ray at a certain height, and the slope of that ray 
uh, being a function of that height and the object distance. Same thing for the uh, image ray. And you could do the exact same analysis I did over there for the thin lens. It's completely analogous. Um, there's one thing to be aware of, though, and that is the um, direction in which we measure the slope changes when we reflect off of a surface because our system reflects. So whereas we were going left to right, when we reflect off the surface, now we're going right to left. That really um, shouldn't cause too much problem. Um, as long as you draw your lines with little arrowheads on it, you can say this ray is sloping down. And the reason I mention this is in certain texts, and uh, I don't think this is one of them. I think uh, lasers by Siegman, which you may encounter in a lasers class or you may use for a number of other things, is a very good text. Actually treats this a little differently and uh, considers this line here to have a positive slope. Instead of treating it as a line that's going down and to the left, they treat it as a line that's going up and to the right with a positive slope instead of down and to the left with a negative slope. Hopefully, um, that's not going to be an issue for us, but I just do mention it in case you uh, experience some confusion later on. Um, we're now measuring everything moving to the, from right to left after we reflect, reflect off of the mirror. So as long as you uh, take that into account, this line is sloping down. Milton? So our in prime is positive because yeah. it's sloping up. And then our out prime is negative because it's sloping down. This radius is negative. So I have to plug in a negative value there. Okay. For this particular one that I drew, it is. Yes. So if you look. Yeah, if you look up here, well, it's different for a lens than it is for a mirror. But if you look at our expression for what the focal length is, we have to plug in a negative radius in order to get a positive focal length. And we expect that this shape of mirror is going to focus the light. So that's going to be Yeah. Uh, for a concave. Well, the r would still be negative, but the focal length would then be negative as well. Okay, so in our convention, if you if you draw the curved surface, regardless of what surface it is, whether it's a mirror or an interface between two boundaries, if you draw that curved surface passing through x equals zero, then the center of curvature will either be in a negative value for x or a positive value for x, depending on the curvature. And if it's at a negative position, then the curvature is negative. Yeah. I'm just going to use this definition. No, this works for a mirror. This relates the focal length of a mirror to the radius of curvature of the mirror. The equation that relates the focal length of a lens to the radius of curvature of its surfaces is the uh, lens maker's formula. And it, 
it's more complex because it's got two different surfaces and it's got two different indices. Sure. So a couple things to be aware of. If your object is off-axis, I don't think we're actually going to deal with any situations where this is an issue, but I do point it out. Um, the curvature of the mirror that it sees is going to be different than if it's on axis. Right? If you have a curved surface and you look at it from an angle, you essentially see a tighter curvature. Um, and so the radius goes down by a factor of cosine theta. That's for the rays as drawn here in the horizontal plane. The ones in the vertical plane are going to see the radius increase by 1 over cosine theta. So if you just correct for, so theta is the angle between the, uh, this ray to the center of the mirror and the optical axis. If you correct for the radius of curvature, you can use the same expression to see how off-axis rays would behave. It's a small, very, it's a small change um, for paraxial rays, and it's not going to be Well, the, let's see, the sagittal, the sagittal rays, I guess of this plane here, that's, uh, that contains the plane of incidence. And the meridional or tangential plane is the one that's perpendicular to the plane of incidence. So that's just some terminology that was used in HECT which is where this diagram came from. So we're going to spend the rest of the day pretty much looking at this example. It's a simple example of two thin lenses that are separated by some distance. And that's a fairly simple optical system in that it has only things that we know how to deal with in it. We know how to deal with thin lenses. We can draw ray diagrams. We can use the thin lens equations. In a system like this, we could calculate for an arbitrary object position where its image would be in a number of different ways, diagrams and the thin lens equations. But we're going to now treat this as some black box. And there will be an input to the system right here and an output to the system over there. And we're going to use the ray matrix approach to find a number of parameters for this, this system. Some of the parameters will be related to the uh, parameters that we described for a thin lens, like the effective focal length and the back focal length. And then we're also just going to want to find out, for a given object, where will its image be? And see how to do this. OK, so um, first, let's find the back focal length of the compound system. So if we illuminate it from the left, what does the back focal length mean? Anyone recall from last time? So this will be the front, this will be the back. What, say it louder? Yeah, if we illuminate it with collimated light on the left, it's the point where the light will converge on the right. Okay, so let me just start by drawing kind of a ray diagram. Now I don't know 
D or F, so I can't actually draw a proper ray diagram. Can't do it to scale. But I can draw for one particular example. here and label the back focal length in that diagram. Gregory? Collimated light means the rays are not are parallel. Well, the rays are parallel. They're not diverging. So it would be light from an infinite object. Okay, so if we had even light from the sun, we can treat that as a collimated rays. And depending on the focal lengths and separations, um, I could this point where they focus could be anywhere. It might not even be a, a real image. It could be that they're spreading out and that there's a, a negative back focal length, meaning an image, that the final image would appear to be inside of this optical system. Okay, so we want to do this using the ray matrix formalism. So let's write our system matrix. Or first, let's define our input and output planes on our diagram. That will tell us, when we calculate things, where we should measure with respect to. Okay, So we'll define an input plane and an output plane. And going from the input plane to the output plane, let's write our matrix. So there's three things. There's a thin lens, a space, another thin lens, and that's it. So the first thin lens is a matrix that we write over here on the right. And its matrix is just 1, 0, minus 1 over f, 1. Next, we have propagation and distance d. So we write another matrix that represents free space propagation over distance d. That looks like 1, d, 0, 1. And then we encounter another lens. It has the same focal length as the first one, just f. So its matrix is the same as the first one. And that will tell, that's the system matrix for this, this system. Um, OK, yeah, let's go ahead and multiply this out.
We don't count for the index of refraction of the lens because that's already taken into account by the focal length. So the, the focal length comes from the lens maker's formula that depends on the radius of curvature and the index of refraction, and that's already all, all bundled in. And we don't need to account for the index of refraction of the surrounding material because it's only when you go from one material to another that the index of refraction becomes relevant. Both Fs are the same. Yeah, it's just a parameter of the problem that both Fs are the same. Um, so I mentioned that when you do these ray matrices, it's very easy to make mistakes, to miss a term, or to uh, screw up your, your algebra. So one thing that we can check is the dimensions of each term. And so let's just go through and look and see what the dimensions should be for the A, B, C, D, and A, B, C, and D terms. Right? What are the dimensions on A? It's a pure number. It's unitless. Okay. How about B? It's easier to see over here in this matrix. It's a distance, right? And then C. It's an inverse distance, and then D again is unitless. And if you recall what this matrix is doing, it's relating an input ray to an output ray. So A relates the input position to the output position, so it should be unitless. B relates the input angle to the output position. So it's taking something that's unitless and converting it into something with dimensions of length, so it should have dimension of length, and vice versa for, for C. OK, so you can check every step of your multiplication, or you can just skip to the final step and make sure that those dimensions are right. So every term here is dimensionless for A. 1 is dimensionless. I have a length over a length, so that's dimensionless. And likewise for D, I have a dimensionless quantity. For B, I should have dimensions of length, and I do. And for C, I should have dimensions of 1 over length. And this is 1 over length, and this is length over length squared. That's 1 over length. So the dimensions all seem consistent. That's a pretty good indication that you did it correctly. Certainly if they're not consistent, you certainly did it incorrectly. Okay, so. This doesn't tell me the back focal length. Right? I need to put in a little bit of physics now in order to understand what I'm looking for. I drew some rays that converged to the back focal length. Let me draw my optical axis. So. Anybody have any thoughts on what I can do, how I can use this system matrix to find the back focal length? Let me go back a step. What do I know about the light at the input plane? Right, so R in prime is 0. At the output plane, I don't really know anything about the light. I mean, I know this transformation property and I could calculate, but that's not where I have a constraint. The point where I have a constraint is over here where the light focuses. What is the constraint at that point? So R, and this isn't at the output plane, so I don't want to call it R out, but um, let me just call this R back focal length equals 0. So what I want now is I want to relate light at this 
input plane where I know something about it to array at this point over here where I know something about the array. But my system matrix doesn't do that. It only gets me through the lens system. I've got this additional length, which is by definition one back focal length, at the end of my, at the end of my system that the light goes through before it gets to the point where I have a constraint. So I shouldn't use this system matrix. I should add one more element. I should add free space propagation through a distance of one back focal length. And the output of that system I'll call This is my output sub back focal length. Say. At that plane, I have a constraint. And I should be able to use those constraints to generate an equation that I can solve for the back focal length. Okay. Yeah. Right. So I could calculate for an arbitrary input ray the position and angle of the output ray and use geometry to figure out where it's going to intersect the, the axis. And that would be a perfectly legitimate way to, to solve this. Okay, it's not the way I'm going to do it, though. So I'm going to add in a propagation, free space propagation, right here. Where should I put that matrix? Over here or over here? Put it on the left, and it's free space propagation, so it's going to have the same form as this one over here. It's just going to have a dis different distance. I'll use BFL as my length. So now I've got one more multiplication to do. So. Why not to the right? Can anybody explain why not add it right over here? Yeah, so what, what I'm going to do is when I multiply a vector through these matrices, my input vector goes on the right side, and then each element that the light encounters going from left to right is a matrix that it mathematically encounters going right to left. So that's a common, common mistake. So there's my complete matrix that takes me from my input plane, where I have a constraint, to my final output at one back focal length away, where I have another constraint. Let me add those constraints in to generate an equation. So my input light, I said I know the angle. I don't know the position of the input ray, so I'm just going to leave that as an arbitrary value r in. 
but I know the angle should be 0. For my output ray, it's the opposite. I know the position should be 0, but I don't know anything about its uh, angle. So this matrix equation, since it's a matrix equation, it really represents two equations. right? There's one equation that says um, for the first, the first row, there's one equation for the second row. And one of those is going to be useful. They may both be useful, depending on the, the problem. So let me write out the two possible equations that I have here. I can say that 0 equals, I'm just going to multiply this matrix through. So I have two equations, right? one for the first row and one for the second row. If I look at them, the equation for the first row I can solve for the back focal length. I have 0 equals this term times the input ray. So either the input ray is at 0 or this term is 0. And if this term is 0, I can then solve that constraint for the back focal length. The second equation is not helpful to me. So I'm not going to, not going to consider it. Right, so I'll look at this one. I want this to be true for an arbitrary value of r in. So a ray at any height should cross the optical axis. So I want to allow r in to be any value. That means this term in brackets has to be 0. So I'll solve that. Let me, let me continue this yeah. on and see if that is the case or not.
there's either a mistake on the slide or there's a mistake on the board. But I'm getting the opposite of what's on the slide. All right, so I have an expression for what the back focal length is in terms of parameters that I might be given in the problem. Right? Um, and I did it entirely using the matrix approach. So I didn't rely on my ray diagram, and I didn't rely on the thin lens equation. Right? So the strength of this approach is it's very systematic. Right? You don't need to uh, try to draw rays and interpret geometry. Um, you just need to multiply a bunch of matrices together, which can be a pain, but certainly using computers, it's, uh, it's negligible difficulty to add another matrix to, a, to an equation. Um, and then you need a constraint for the input and output. So finding the input and output constraints and making sure that your matrix encompasses everything between that input and output is important. And so when we, drew, when we wrote this first matrix in green, that didn't encompass everything between our input and output constraints, so we had to add a term that accounted for this extra length. Right, any questions on that? Okay, and what I'm going to do, I'm going to save this uh, expression for the back focal length. We're going to use it here in a second. I'm going to erase everything else to give myself some more room so that we can solve for another parameter of this system. Let's find the effective focal length of this system. So the effective focal length of the system will allow us to treat this system as a thin lens at some point. That point is going to be what we called H2. And it's not clear at this point where that's going to be located be a function of D and F. But there's going to be some location where I can treat this as a thin lens with an effective focal length. And if I measure everything from that point, then I can um, use the thin lens equation and, and understand this in terms of the thin lens approximations. OK, so similar type of thing. I kind of wish I hadn't erased the entire, the entire uh, expression for the system matrix, but I guess it's easy enough to look at this slide. Um, the first step is going to be to find the system matrix going from the input to the output plane. The next step is going to be figuring out what our constraint is. And so we need to remind ourselves what the effective focal length is and where that point that we're going to be measuring from. So the key here is that the effective focal length is measured from some plane. And it's going to be important for us to determine where that plane is. But measured from that plane, the system is going to act like a thin lens. And so we know, for example, that collimated light is going to focus at one back focal length away. So let's say that's over here. If that's the case, if this is the back focal length, 
and in my ray diagram. assume this position yet. In my ray diagram, what I want to do is trace the input rays past the lens and trace the converging output rays back here. And the, the plane where they intersect is where I measure the effective focal length from. And because this is the back surface, like collimated light going into and focusing after the back surface, this distance here, let's see, this distance here we called H2. We said H2 was always positive when it was to the right of the vertex. So as I've drawn it, that would be a negative distance. You want to treat the system as a thin lens. You need to know the effective focal length. You need to know where that plane is, that principal plane. Okay. Another reason you might need to know that is if you buy a lens from a manufacturer, they may specify an effective focal length. If it's a compound lens, maybe it's a compound microscope objective or it's a camera lens that's got multiple elements to compensate chromatic aberration and such, they may specify an effective focal length. Or you may be charged with creating the specifications for this lens to sell to customers, and you need to figure out what that effective focal length is, because your customers might want to know that. Well, I would say this. If you care about where the light focuses, and your light is coming from infinity, you can specify that in a number of ways. If you specify the back focal length, and you specify it as a back focal length, you've completely determined where that image is going to be. And that's what's important if you're just trying to find the image. Okay. Now, your object might not be at infinity. right? So you might, we might ask, where is the image going to be for an object that's one meter away? And so we would either have to redraw the ray diagram, or we would have to know what the effective focal length is in order to use the thin lens equation to find that. Okay, so. What I'm doing here is not, is not necessarily necessary. Right? You, could, um, you could set up the ray diagram for a specific case you're interested in. An object one meter away, where is the image? And you could find that. Or you could try to find these general parameters that allow a user then to specify the lens in terms of useful properties so that they can calculate themselves where images would be for various objects. That's what we're trying to do here. Okay, so here's where that thin lens would be. Now I need to figure out what the constraints are. Um, I already know where the back focal length is. Right? And actually, I had an expression before that would tell me this angle, r prime back focal length. 
It was an expression I chose not to evaluate because it wasn't going to be useful for finding the back focal length. But I know this height, r in, and I know r prime back focal length, and I know the back focal length, then I can do a little bit of geometry here and look at this triangle. and say, this distance is minus h2. This distance is the back focal length. And I know the leg of that triangle. If I know that angle, and I know this height, and I know everything about that triangle. So I guess if I don't know h2, but I know this height is r in, I know that r in divided by this base has to equal that angle I could solve for H2. Mark? Well, h2 is defined as positive when it's on the right. So it's that bottom equation you just read then is really BFL uh, minus, minus h2? Or BFL plus the absolute value. OK. Just to, OK, thanks. Which is the way you do it. Yeah. So if you like, just give this a x equals minus h2. All right, so that's one way to solve this. Um, use the expression that I already had for the back focal length, plug it in, solve for x, determine h2. Once I know where h2 is, I can just write the effective focal length then is the back focal length plus x, right, where x is minus h2. OK. so. Let's see how I did it in the slide. I don't remember. I did this a while ago. There's oftentimes more than one way to do this. Okay, so I took an input constraint that the ray is parallel to the optical axis. That's the same constraint we had before. And then I drew it with h2 being a positive quantity, so to the right of the system. And I said, OK, so for the output angle, If I calculate the output angle of the system, I'm going to, OK, so that's maybe somewhat simpler. I know this angle is r prime out. It's the same thing as the back focal length. I guess that's what that, I didn't even look at the expression I had from the previous analysis, but that's what it should have told me. Is that r prime back focal length is the same as r prime out. Okay, so I'm getting the same thing. I'm just using r prime out. So if I hadn't already done the previous analysis to determine the back focal length, then I could relate this angle to this distance r in and this distance, which is the effective focal length. 
questions? You can find. There's a number of ways you could do it, but yes, you could find the back focal length, right? You could uh, you could find the back focal length. You could find the front focal length by turning the lens around. Okay, so you know if you knew the two points the light would focus to, then the uh, effective focal length has got to be half the distance between them. Another way of saying it. Milton? Yeah, there is. Um, let's look at the form of this effective focal length. It's uh, 2 over f minus d over f squared. That's C, an ABCD matrix, or at least it's minus C. Okay. So minus C will give you the effective focal length. Yeah. Is that right? Right. One over the effective focal length. One over the effective focal length was plus two over f. So minus one over c. C is 1 over F, so the effective focal length is 1 over C, right, minus 1 over C. So let's just look at the, uh, the ABCD matrix for a thin lens. Right? Its focal length is its effective focal length. C is minus 1 over F, so its effective focal length is minus 1 over C, which would be F. And it holds for more complex systems as well. So you can prove that. I haven't done the proof, but you can prove that that's the case. That's right. Yeah. There is no similar trick for finding H2. Okay. Um, let's look at maybe a problem that's familiar to you right now. We've got a fishbowl with a mirrored surface on one side, a curved surface on the other, and an object over here. I think that was the homework problem. Where is the image? Right, okay, so we can do that in terms of ray matrices. And if we know the object distance and this distance, which I'll call D, we can write out the system matrix for this. I'll draw some arbitrary image location. And I'll call it SI away from the surface. So when the light goes 
into the fish tank, reflects off the back, and then comes out, it'll get imaged somewhere over here. If I get a negative value for the image distance, it just means the, the image appears to be inside the fish tank. And I can solve this expression. I'm not worried about effective focal lengths, back focal lengths. I'm just worried, where is that image? Right, so that's typically a type of thing we might want to find out. I can do this using the ray matrices. So let me set this up. Um, I'm not going to solve it. I'm not going to go through all the matrix multiplication, but I can set it up. Starting from my object, the first thing it encounters is free space propagation through a distance S0. Next thing it encounters is a curved surface. And I need to, I don't have that system matrix memorized, so I need to check that one. Radius of curvature of this positive or negative? It's positive, right here. So then I'm going to propagate through a distance d, reflect off of a mirror, and go another distance d. And if I want, I can just unfold this system around this reflection and treat that as a propagation through a distance 2d, or I can. Say the reflection from a mirror doesn't change anything. It doesn't change the position of a ray. It doesn't change its angle. So the mirror would be the identity matrix. And then another distance, D. So these three matrices you're going to multiply to give together to give me 1, 2D, 0, 1. It would be the same thing as if I just treated it as going a distance 2D. Now I come to this mirror again, or this uh, surface. I'm now going right to left. So is this surface a positive radius or a negative radius? Yeah. Now it's negative, right? Because I'm seeing it, my, my coordinate system has flipped when I went from the mirror. So my expression looks like this, but the ends, I'm going from high index to low index. So instead of 1 over n, I'm going to have n over 1. And instead of r, I'm going to have <coughs> negative r. So this r that I'm using is going to be a positive value. So that's refraction through this. And then I go a distance si. Through free space. And that's my propagation from my object to my final image. Mark? Yeah, so what this is is a thick lens. I have one curved surface here, 
of negative radius of curvature, one curved surface here, positive radius of curvature. So that's uh, uh, by convex lens and a thickness in between of 2D. I have an object distance in front, an image distance afterwards, and now I just need to figure out my constraints. So I can write, for example, an expression for my input and output rays. So I'm going to solve it for SI in terms of S0 and assume that all these other things are either given or I can leave them symbolic. Now, a couple things. When we draw ray diagrams, we always draw the rays from the tip of an object that's raised up above the optical axis. Right? We do that because um, that will allow us to draw the principal rays. You know, that either go through, or the key rays, that either go through the center of the lens or are parallel to the optical axis and then get bent through the focal point. When we do ray matrices, it's going to be more useful to draw or to consider rays that emanate from a base of an object on the optical axis. Okay, for ray diagrams, that'd be pretty useless because the three key rays would all be the same ray, just going straight through. That's the ray that goes through the center. It's also the ray that goes through the front focal point and the back focal point. So that doesn't help us at all. But here, that's helpful because we know the position of the object and the image should be 0. Okay. So the position of the object and the image should be 0. And that's all I need. When I multiply this through, I'll have one equation for the top row. And I'll have an equation for the bottom row. I guess I have to plug in some arbitrary um, angle for the input ray. I'm going to call this the object ray. Okay, so some arbitrary ray coming out at an angle. And then likewise, when this finally gets imaged, this ray is going to come back with some angle, our image prime. I'm going to call that object, this image. Those are arbitrary values. There's going to be a relationship between them that comes from this expression. I don't so much care about that right now. What I care about is the constraints, because I've got a 0 here and a 0 here. When I multiply this through, I'm going to get some expression for the first term has to equal 0. And I can solve that. It will depend on SI, and it will depend on S0. So I can solve it for one in terms of the other. Okay, So again, the math may be difficult, or maybe not straightforward, particularly if you're doing it by hand. But the methodology is systematic. Don't need to try to think about rays, trace rays backwards, figure out uh, creative ways to interpret geometry. You just need to plug through the matrices. Okay, there's a new homework assigned for next Tuesday, so make sure to check that out.